It's time for another edition of Your Home Discovery, broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. Podcast available at yourhomediscovery.com. Your Home Discovery, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. Now, here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Hey, welcome back to more Your Home Discovery. I am Charlie Campbell. What exactly are you thinking for your home? Are you considering an addition? Are you considering just a renovation? Maybe a refresh? I got a question, info at yourhomediscovery.com, recently asking about house values and home improvements. And this one was specifically related to what I would determine to be more upgrades as opposed to improvements. There's kind of a fine line balancing point that I want to talk just a little bit about when it comes to the value of your home. When we take, and just because my my brain is simple, my mind works in simple things, we're going to just talk about a $100,000 home. And don't allow that, depending upon where you live, to throw your brain into what this house looks like. I'm simply using a $100,000 home because it's simple math. Let's say we have a home and we're ready to put it on the market and we feel that its value should be around $100,000 based on what is a, a, a favorite term in the real estate industry, comps. So what we're doing with a comp or a comparable is we're comparing lot size, area, square footage, number of garage stalls, basement or no. Basically, we're trying to get a like for like. And we all know with homes, there are no two identical homes. So we're using more of a flyover concept, a 30,000 foot elevation. I really don't want to know the blood pressure and all of that stuff. I just want to know the basics. How many square feet? We need to be close to that to get a comparable. How many bathrooms? How many bedrooms? And you will find a three-bedroom, two-bath house with a comparable on the list that has four bedrooms and three bathrooms, but maybe only one stall garage instead of two. So what we're talking about specifically is generalities when it comes to your home. So we take our home. Based on comparables, we're thinking it's a $100,000 value. Now, what happens next with that value is where we land the plane. We, don't, we aren't doing a 30,000-foot elevation. We are looking specifically at the home. What are the reasons that it is justifiable to explain why you need more or you shouldn't really be warranted that 100,000? Maybe it's only worth 90. Maybe it's worth 120. There are some things that we need to look at specifically to determine that value more specifically than comparables. Now, keep in mind, from a loan perspective, the banker is not going to land in the plane with you and look at the details. He wants the comps. They simply have to have a comparable home at that price. 
So out of the $100,000 home that we're looking at selling and the $100,000 comparable, our home has a 18-sear heat pump where the comparable has a 10-sear air conditioner. That automatically makes our home worth more than the other. However, what if the other home has new windows, new floor covering, new paint, and we have windows, floor covering, and paint from the 1980s? Not that there's anything wrong with the 80s. In fact, I kind of miss that decade. However, outdated homes do not retain their value. It's like going to the doctor and getting your your metabolic panel and, and keeping yourself in shape and, and, and keeping everything updated in your home. Painting. Obviously, if the paint is peeling off the walls and in the comparable, somebody has just refreshed that paint, a, a refresh, a modernization, a, a... I'm trying to think of a simple way to say we're not doing major renovation. New carpet versus five-year-old carpet versus 25-year-old carpet. If that $100,000 house has 25-year-old carpeting, that 100 probably drops down. What we're talking about here isn't so much dollar value, but saleability. So the email, info at yourhomediscovery.com, got into some specific detail. We put in new carpeting, new painting, new light fixtures, Sorry, I scrolled too far. New light fixtures, new countertops, new plumbing fixtures, and we're not receiving our investment on top of the value. I don't understand, and so I've emailed back and forth with, with, with Harold here, and he, he, he's got some valid questions because I think, I think sometimes these aren't broken down well enough. If I have... X number of square foot, $100,000 home, and my carpeting is new, does that mean that it's worth more than the $100,000? What we do when we keep things up to date is we increase saleability. Someone walks into that home and sees brand new carpet, maintained paint. And when I say brand new, maybe it's maybe it's a couple, three years old, but we've taken care of it. We've cleaned it on a regular basis. One of the biggest mistakes I see with carpeting is that Folks tend to forget that it's probably a good idea to have that professionally restretched after five to eight years, depending upon traffic patterns and wear patterns. You see a little wrinkle through the carpet. It, it could very realistically mean it's past time for a restretch. If we keep that carpet healthy, just like I mentioned earlier, we go to the doctor, we maintain our metabolic panel, we have a maintained property, we have not only maintained our value, we have increased our saleability. So if we take that $100,000 home, we put it on the market for a week and it hasn't sold, and we invest $15,000 into new windows because the existing windows are single pane, paint was flaking. Now we have insulated windows with the low E argon gas and all that. Windows is a whole nother episode by itself. Now, should we be able to add that 15000 to the 100000 and have a $115,000 home? Most likely not. That 30,000-foot elevation of the $100,000 estimation or appraisal 
for that home is based on things being in good, maintained working order. That does not mean single-pane glass with the paint flaking, some of the some of the glass is a little iffy, and there's really no insulating value to a single-pane glass window. The older-style windows just weren't as efficient. So now we're comparing that to the home down the street, and it has new windows that were put in 10 years ago. It's a maintenance item. Maintenance items do not typically add value to the home. What they do add is saleability. We want to make sure our home is maintained so that it can be saleable. We want to increase that saleability, that draw factor. Anything that's not maintained, any detraction from a draw factor becomes a focal point. After a new buyer has looked at three homes, well, I really like that one. I really like this one. This house, wow, I really like the location the best of all of them. I really like the backyard. I like access to work. I like the neighborhood. I like whatever could be existent with that home. (sighs) But it's going to need all new carpeting and the paint's bad versus the other home we looked at. Carpeting's five years old, but it looks like it's in good shape. The paint doesn't look like it was just redone. However, it doesn't have anything flaking off. There's no spots, stains, cracks to speak of. It's that saleability factor, that judgment factor of breaking down is the home valued where it should be. If I'm looking at two $100,000 homes and one of them has the 18-seer or 20-seer heat pump as opposed to a 10-seer air conditioning system, in my mind, it's worth investing just a little bit more, even if the banker doesn't see it that way, because I know I have a newer furnace air conditioner. I'm going to invest $25,000 in a new HVAC system a lot farther down the road than I am with this other home. So we have to start breaking down saleability the importance of maintaining what is, for most of us, our largest investment, our home. Maintaining it is crucial. So here's my assignment for you for this weekend. Get a screwdriver, Phillips one, a regular one, and a pair of pliers. And just go around the house and let's do things like tighten hinges, tighten doorknobs. Those things get loose because we're there all the time we don't really think specifically about it. Stay tuned. Your home discovery continues straight ahead. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Thanks for staying with this first part of the program. We have broken down the difference between increasing the value of the property significantly and keeping that property value maintained. So I've given you assignment regular screwdriver, Phillips screwdriver, pair of pliers. We're just going to take a maintenance walk around the property very slowly, and we're going to look at things that we pass by. And just really, quite honestly, we tend to discard on a daily basis. The the front doorknob, you know, it's a little loose when you walk in the door, but we've gotten used to it because it's loosened up over time. It's amazing how in 10 minutes you can change the function of that doorknob. You might have a hinge 
on your kitchen cabinet door. When you open it, you feel it move or shift just a little bit. If we attack these things in small pieces, we can accomplish amazing things in just a short period of time for a very small amount of money. It's called maintenance items. Another thing really important to look at around our homes as we talk about maintenance items in a lot of areas of the country, we're starting to see cooler temperatures. In fact, in most areas, even in Arizona, the evenings are getting cooler. We're starting to wear that jacket that no one ever wears in Arizona, right? So the, the things that we have to look for are reasons to keep the indoor temperature indoors. If you have a basement in your home, it's one of those areas where realistically you, this is going to just sound silly, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go to the basement. This is always best to have someone else with you so that you're not walking around in the dark. But go to the basement when it is sunny outside, close blinds, close things up, shut the lights off. And look for places where daylight comes in. I just looked at a home a week ago, and the request was, Hey, do you think while you're here, you could take a peek at my plumbing lines in the basement because I'm always getting a pipe freeze for my kitchen? So I go down. I'm under the kitchen, I'm looking at the piping, and everything looks pretty solid. So then I start following that piping back, and we are probably 20 feet away from the kitchen at this particular point, and I noticed sunlight coming through the joist bay. So we shut lights off. Not only did that confirm the sunlight coming through about 10, 12 feet away, two more feet away was another spot, and then another four feet away or five feet away, it was another spot. And my guess is that is the place where the water pipe is freezing. And because the kitchen, 12, 14 feet away, doesn't work, we start to focus in that kitchen area looking for what, me, what might be freezing that pipe. Well, there's no T's anywhere on that supply line. So the only thing that we're feeding downstream of where we have sheer daylight coming in the joist bay is that kitchen sink faucet. So when that line freezes, kitchen sink no longer works, we think our issue is there. Take a look for areas where daylight may be coming in. Let's get those closed up. Let's keep the heat that's in in. Keep the cold that's outside, right where it belongs, outside. Let's not let that in, especially by leaving a big opening that sunlight can come through. Some other places to check where it, this should just scream at you if there's a problem, around things where we have had to make a man-made hole in the structure in order to get a utility in or out. We have things like our gas line that feeds all of our either natural or propane gas if we have a home 
with a gas system. It is crucial that that gas system that is underground coming to your property daylight before it comes into your home. I'm going to say that again. This is really crucial. We need to make sure that our gas service that's coming to the home underground comes above ground before it goes into the home. You've probably heard of homes that have exploded because of a gas leak. Back before this was realized or really thought through, if the gas service comes into the home, if it's a slab home, comes in under the slab, if it's a basement, comes through the basement wall and then up, I think the initial thought was nobody wants to see that gas line daylight and then turn and go into the home. The downfall is we could develop a slight gas leak on the utility's main out in the road. We could develop a slight gas leak in the service line coming to the property. And especially on propane systems, you know, those are owned typically by the homeowner. The propane tank might be leased, but the supply piping for the home is typically owned by the homeowner. And if that pipe comes in underground, it's exactly the same as the natural gas line that's, that, that could very easily have a leak in that line. Now, 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 what in the world does a leak in a line out in the yard have to do with getting into the home? Well, that leak is going to follow that pipe. And it is not uncommon for that to follow that line all the way, guess where? <laughs> right under your crawl space, under your slab-on-grade home, or into your basement. This is why we want that natural gas service to come up to the home, turn and come up daylighting, and then turn and go into the property. Anything that happens underground, if it follows the pipe, it's going to find its way back to atmosphere outside the home. If it's coming in underground, I would contact your gas provider and ask them if this is how it is supposed to be done in this market. Again, the United States is a big area and there's a lot of different way things are done. But I can tell you, I would be real curious to know where an underground gas line entering a property without daylighting is allowed. doesn't meet National Fuel Gas Code. It doesn't meet the Uniform Plumbing Code. I can't imagine where it would be allowed. The downfall is we have a lot of areas in the country where we get no inspections. So sometimes these things can happen. Visit our website, yourhomediscovery.com. There's a place on there you can contact us if you've got questions, if you've got a gas service that's coming in. Love to have some photos of what you're seeing. I can help you narrow it down and help you specifically with the questions that you might need to ask your gas provider or local plumbing or mechanical contractor. Those are the folks 
that would be making it right, fixing it, helping you get this to a safe scenario. So now having said that, our gas services, daylighting, turning and coming in through the property, look at that gas line with the lights off in the basement and see if you see daylight. I saw one about two months ago. The, uh, there's probably a three-eighths of an inch gap all the way around the bottom side of that gas service. The top side still had silicone where the painter had sealed that up. So as you walk by and look down, you don't see that the bottom third and the entire bottom of that gas service have a three-eighths gap. Cold air is just cruising right in that hole. Our heat's leaving. It's also a place for insects to come and visit. So if you like insects, maybe you find something else to do this weekend. But I would recommend take a look at this. Some other quick areas to take a look at. Your dryer vent, where it goes through the exterior. Any utility where it comes through the wall, let's ensure that those are all sealed up. Summer, winter really doesn't make a difference. We have either cold air or insects that are trying to find somewhere warm. So we want to get that resolved and closed up. Just some maintenance items to think about. If you're in an area of the country where it gets pretty darn cold, checking that attic insulation is a really, really good idea. And based on your area, if you have specific questions about how deep it should be versus what you have, visit our website, yourhomediscovery.com. Follow the links to send me a message. There's a little paper clip in there. You can send some photos. I'll be glad to help you. More helpful ways to build and improve your home sweet home are straight ahead. Stay tuned. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. We are back on Your Home Discovery. I am Charlie Campbell. We are talking about some maintenance tips and ideas for your home. Garage doors are such a cool feature. I mean, you think about the old days when you had to get out of the car and swing the, 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 the swing doors open to get the car in the garage. Maybe you don't remember that. Maybe I'm too old to even be sitting here. But anyway, you know, now we don't even really pay close attention to the garage door. We're typically in the vehicle, so we certainly don't hear it. And oftentimes especially when it's super hot or super cold outside, or especially if it's raining, we hit that button. I mean, this is so popular, I don't think you can buy a new vehicle now without it already having buttons installed in the vehicle that you can pair to your garage door. That's how common this is. So as we are looking at and maintaining our home, Let's go out to the garage and open that door and close it and truly listen to how it's operating. Most of the time, a garage door or a garage door opener are going to start communicating to you when there's an issue. And if it's binding, struggling a little bit, there could be a couple of issues. If it is spring controlled, maybe the spring needs adjustment. That is absolutely not something that I want to advocate for you to try to fix yourself. That is a reason to reach out to a garage door professional and get that touched up, tuned up, and fixed. It may be as simple 
as a little bit of penetrating lubricant on the wheels for the garage door rails that that the garage door rolls on on that track. There are usually five or six wheels per side of the garage door, and I think you'd be amazed at the sound difference if you lubricate those rollers. Simple adjustments, simple tweaks, tightening hinges, tightening door handles. If you have a swinging door that tends to go up and down, so we open the door, grab the door knob, and slightly lift on the door. And if we have some play there, we need to determine where that play is coming from. Has the hinge come loose? Not uncommon. Those little bitty three by four hinges are holding an awful lot of weight. And very often, those hinges are secured to the door jam with little bitty half to three quarter inch long Phillips head screws into pine lumber. Over the course of five, ten years of opening and closing, especially our entry doors, oftentimes those screws will loosen up just a little bit. Interestingly, as the screw in a door hinge loosens up, we have now taken away from the space those hinges need to close together when the door closes. And I can assure you the amount of force is pretty significant. So as that screw starts to loosen and the hinge pushes together, it could very easily begin to slightly strip that opening in that door jam. You might need a little longer screw so that we can sneak past that door jam and we can get back into the jack stud or the king stud that's behind that door frame. You have to be very careful, though, not to cinch that down so tight that you physically pull that door jam toward that jack stud or king stud. Most of the time when a door is hung, we want that thing to be plumb and level, shimmed, so that we can attain plumb and level. Rough framing is exactly that. It's rough. The door opening framing, the two by fours, wall studs, jack studs, king studs, those are not designed or installed to be perfectly level. We get that level plumb when we install the door by using what are called door shims. That puts the door jam itself between a quarter and an inch and a half away from that stud. Inch and a half really probably means somebody messed something up on the framing. Usually, you won't have that much gap between the door jam and the framing. If you were to take the casing off, you will see the gap as long as that gap isn't covered by sheetrock. In repair situations, when it comes to loose door hinges, this is an area where it can get a little perplexing. The, the, the door jam itself does not push toward the wall stud. It seems very solid. It could be, since the way this is put together, the order in which it's done, is the framing is done first, so we have our jack studs, king studs, and wall studs, and we have this opening with the header. Then we're going to put our, we may, we, it, depending upon the order, we could realistically 
hang the doors in their jams and put the jams in the openings. Then we could sheetrock right up tight to that door jam. And we have these door shims that have pulled us away from that jack stud about a quarter to an inch. However, the sheetrock is run up tight to the door jam. Sometimes in getting these things, especially with homes that settled, info at yourhomediscovery.com, I got a picture of a door where it appears there's been a little shifting of the home and we need to get that door jam moved back at the top, not the bottom. We need to move the door jam back at the top about three-eighths of an inch. That doesn't sound like much, but three-eighths of an inch makes a major difference in how that door actually lines up with its alignment latch, deadbolt, and how well it operates. I can't move that three-eighths of an inch if that sheetrock is up tight against that door frame. So in order to get that plumbed or aligned correctly, this might mean you need a handyman. You might have to remove the casing. You might have to shave the sheetrock back a little bit. You might have to go as so far as to even remove the casing on the other side. If this is an exterior door, the casing on the outside is a brick mold. We might have to remove that and get that door aligned in that opening. Then we want to make sure that on our hinges, we have at least one screw going back into that jack stud because we want that to be more solid. So these are just maintenance tips. Take a look at your doors, see how they're operating. Lubricate our garage doors. What are some other things to look at? Especially for homes around the country headed to cooler temperatures, we want to take a close look at our exterior fixtures. Exact same thing happens when you shut that front door to that front door wall fixture that's mounted on the wall that happens to the door itself. You have activity, open and close, open and close, open and close, and think about how many times that occurs at your home. Three, four kids constantly in and out of the door, and every time that door shuts, that wall fixture shakes a little bit. Info at yourhomediscovery.com. I got an email. It's a picture of an exterior light that had fallen off and was hanging by its wiring. The assembling nuts that hold it to its base are custom built by the lighting manufacturer to make it blend in and go away so that you don't really notice an attachment screw. It's kind of part of the design. And the question that I got, info at yourhomediscovery.com, where can I get replacement ones that match this fixture? Chances are pretty good you're not going to find them. And if they fell off because open and close, open and close, got loose, one of them fell off, now we have a threaded bolt showing and the other side still has this attachment, but maybe we don't even notice that. Like in the case of this email, this photo, the thing is completely hanging off, hanging down, and there are no assembly nuts to put it together. What we're probably looking at, no more than a new one costs, buying a new fixture. So if you added up the cost of a new fixture, 
maybe a new hinge for our cabinet and a new garage door repair by a, a garage door repairman that comes out and puts new rollers in. 30 minutes spent this weekend walking around our home and just doing simple maintenance tasks could save us hundreds of dollars later. But moreover, it saves us the aggravation of that repair, which will typically come at the goofiest time. Info at yourhomediscovery.com. I received an email about a garage door that one side had fallen off because the rollers had literally worn out. The ball bearings had come out of the roller. It allowed too much space, and one came out of the side. When did this happen? I had some email interaction here. It happened 1130 at night. Now you're stuck with a garage door you can't even close at 11.30 at night. A lot of good reasons to perform maintenance. Stay tuned. Your home discovery continues straight ahead. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Today's program, we are taking apart the discussion of basic home maintenance things that at the end of the day, you're going to notice a significant difference in the operation of your garage door, your entry door, your heating bill, the lack of freezing pipes if you're in an area of the country that gets cold enough for that. We've talked about sealing up leaks from outside, turning the lights off in the basement and looking for places where the sun comes in during the day. It's incredible how helpful that sun can be in a dark basement looking for areas that leak. We talked about even checking our light fixtures outside. Think about thermal differential. That light was installed five years ago. It has had how many open and close, open and close with the door that's right beside it, which gives just a little bit of vibration to the wall. We've gone from a heat index of 600. I'm just kidding. It doesn't get that hot. To... A wind chill of 600 below, again, doesn't get that cold. However, temperature differential causes expansion and contraction. Expansion and contraction can easily cause things to loosen up. Another area, speaking of loose, we want to check our gutters. I'm not encouraging you to get on a ladder. That's probably something to be left for those that are that love doing that and are agile, so I'm not going to advocate that you do that. But you can see an awful lot from the ground. Uh, 20-year-old home, a couple of weeks ago, about 30% of the gutter connecting spikes were sticking out between half and three-fourths of an inch. Again, expansion, contraction, the overhang, the gutter, depending upon the direction, the sun could easily warm that area up first and cool it down last. You could have expansion and contraction going on with those gutter spikes or connecting screws. There's newer ways to do this, but what we're talking about is maintaining homes that are 5 to 50 to 100 years old. We don't all live in a brand new home. Obviously, this goes without saying, and we all know, we should keep those gutters clean. Packed gutters, even partially so, 
can easily restrict that rain flow that's trying to get to that downspout. We can keep that gutter full, and now I refer you back to the gutter spikes or attachment screws or nails or however it is attached. We're asking that attachment device to hold the gutter there. We never thought that it's going to retain a full gutter of water for about two or three days till some of it evaporates. So we want to make sure that our gutters are kept clean. What happens when the gutter is left full? Water can easily wick up behind the gutter apron or the flange or the flashing, whatever happens to be going from the roof deck down into the gutter. We get water back up behind that. We can have dry rot on our fascia. We can have dry rot on our roof sheeting. Info at yourhomediscovery.com. Shoot me a photo if you've got a question about something you see when you're checking out your guttering. Maybe something doesn't look quite right. We want to make sure that we're not keeping water in there and getting dry rot and creating a very expensive repair to take all the guttering down, new soffit, fascia, and potentially a new foot-wide piece of roof sheeting. It's not just that foot of roof sheeting. It's also the shingles, tar paper, everything that is on top of that, and then it's blending it into the rest of the roof. We can create some real issues by not keeping guttering cleaned. I've also mentioned anytime you get a nice light rain, and I'm not talking about when there is lightning or a dangerous condition. I'm also not talking about when it's dark outside. But if you have a nice steady rainfall, no lightning, everything is calm, and you have a little extra time, I would encourage you, put on a rain suit, windbreaker, get an umbrella, and walk around and just give the home an entire eyeballs look at how your home is handling that liquid weather event. We typically run from the car to the house or pull into that garage we were talking about earlier when it's raining outside, and we really don't look. But what also does not happen when the clouds come and the rain starts, our home does not get to run to the closet and put on a rain jacket. It does not have an umbrella. It can plop up there. It has to be designed to take it, to direct the water to the guttering correctly. We want to make sure that we're not overflowing the guttering. Most of the time, this is all installed and designed correctly, but you may have an area of your home where you needed a larger gutter. You have a larger roof expanse, and under normal rainfall conditions, the water coming down the shingles is jumping right over the guttering. So if you see a solid, heavy amount of water coming down the front of the home, the back of the home, the sides, if, it, if it's a hip roof, there's probably a reason behind that. We want to determine what that is. Is the gutter simply full? Is the rain overshooting it? If we're getting an excessive rain event, it is possible that the amount of water coming down per minute or per hour is in excess of how it was designed. 
info at yourhomediscovery.com or visit the website and, and, and click on the link to send me some photos. I would love to see them and help you with that. We're going to walk around the home and also take a look at how that stormwater is getting away from our foundations. On previous shows, we've talked a little bit about getting that stormwater away and making sure that we're not piling up water or redirecting that water right up against the foundation. Goofiest way to recycle I've ever seen, but we can get this stormwater comes perfectly off the roof into a great, nice, clean gutter down the downspout and a foot out into the yard that's graded backwards, makes a U-turn and goes over down to the drain tile, in around the basement perimeter, into the sump pump, up the sump pump ejection line, out the back of the house, six inches, drops right there into another pool of water that is headed back to the drain tile and back to the sump pump. You can see the circle that we're creating here. Info at yourhomediscovery.com. If you've got specific questions, I would love to take those apart and help you get through that a little further. Look for some items that you may need some professional help with as you go around your home. Take a look at things like we talked about, stretching the carpet, squeaks in the floor. Finding a really good handyman is a great idea. Let's keep things maintained. Maintaining is a whole lot less expensive than replacing. Info at yourhomediscovery.com. I have a question, and it is in regard to a GFCI breaker. It says, I have an outlet on my back deck, and it no longer works. Someone told me that it is a GFCI breaker, and I may want to push the reset button to get it to work again. I've looked at the outlet, really expecting to push a button, and there isn't one. Any other suggestions? Well, because I, I don't know the experience level that you have, I'm certainly not going to recommend that you get take the breaker panel apart and start tracing circuits. Finding a quality electrician that you can trust is probably your best bet. Some food for thought so you know different terminology. You can have a breaker outdoors. Most electric codes require that it be GFCI. So the advice that you got is not wrong. And hitting the reset button could be the right answer. The question we have to wrestle with is, where is that GFCI switch? It does not have to be on the outlet in question here. You can put a GFCI breaker, provided we're not overloading amperage or wiring sizes or breaker sizes. You can put in a breaker and then protect the next one with that GFCI. That button may be somewhere else. I've also seen GFCI breakers where the breaker itself is where the reset button is. Take some photos. Photos are worth a whole lot. If you've got questions about maintenance around your home, electrical, plumbing, heating and air conditioning, or general remodeling, info at yourhomediscovery.com. Would love to hear from you. Take care. Thanks for enjoying another edition of Your Home Discovery with Charlie Campbell, a presentation of CQH Ranch, LLC, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. 
broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. Tune in again soon for more tips and ideas to keep your home sweet home looking great. Podcast available 24-7, yourhomediscovery.com.